The text for the sermon this day is taken from that reading from Jonah, which was read earlier. Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Jonah is given a very important task. He is required to go to the great city of Nineveh to deliver a message. He is going to tell them that in four, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now the first time he gets this message, he is in Joppa, well, near Joppa, which is right on the Mediterranean Sea um, in, is modern, in Israel. And when he gets that message, he doesn't go to Nineveh, he decides to go towards Tarshish. If you want to know where Tarshish is, that is on the southern border of Spain. Definitely in the opposite direction. Nineveh would be in like modern day Iraq. So, very close, actually very close to modern day Baghdad. So when he gets the message, he goes, like I said, he goes the other way. Well, because he thinks he could run away from God, which, you know, is just really silly, but he thought he could do it. And so he gets thrown out of a boat. He gets, well, actually he jumps out of the boat. He gets swallowed by a fish. Yes, a fish, not a whale. People trying to think that the Bible doesn't understand basic, doesn't know biology, but it is actually a fish. And actually based upon the Greek word, it was actually more likely something akin, more akin to a dinosaur. So it was probably more of a prehistoric type fish that swallowed him. But anyways, then he gets vomited out. That's the Greek word, vomited out onto the, out of the fish. And then he had to begrudgingly walk, well, go by caravan probably, all the way to Nineveh. You know, have you ever, remember that when you were a kid, when your parents told you you had to go do something and you eventually, and you're like, nope, nope, you fought, fought and fought and eventually realized there was no more fighting and you just <laughs> probably kicked the dirt. So I imagine Jonah did something like that. And he had to go from Joppa all the way to Nineveh. About, take about a month to go there by caravan. So plenty of time to think about the journey. And we eventually find out in Jonah why he doesn't want to go there. Because he knows that if he goes there and they repent, he knows that God is, is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he knows that he will relent. And he doesn't want God to do that. And so probably, I could imagine, as he's making that journey, deep inside of him, he's hoping that the Ninevites will not repent, and he gets to sit there and get a front row seat to their destruction. Because I want you to understand, Nineveh is the capital, was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. History has it the Assyrians were probably one of the top two most brutal empires in the history of the world. I'd say the Mongolians are the only ones that were probably worse. Especially the way they treated their captors. The way which you, the stories of what they did to nations that they conquered would be the perfect source of nightmares. 
And so there is a reason why they were hated. In fact, the Assyrians are the ones who destroyed the northern kingdom. The northern, the, you know, if you remember, the king got split into two kingdoms, north and south. The northern kingdom, the southern kingdom was preserved. The northern kingdom was obliterated. It was destroyed to such a degree that nobody knows where their descendants are. And so that is the people he's being told he has to go to. And he's going to have to go into the heart of their capital city and tell them, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown because of their great sin, essentially. And so he's going to, I mean, think about this. This would be like in modern day, the best equivalence I could think of is if you, you were told that you had to go into the heart of the, the primary ISIS, or ISIL, ISIL, whichever you want to call it, the primary ISIS camp, you had to go into the dead center of it and tell them, yet 40 days and this camp will be, and ISIS will be destroyed. By the way, that's a little terrifying to do. But also, I'll bet you, if we, I have a feeling that we would probably be like Jonah, want to get up on the hill and sit and watch when God does it. And I think part of us, because all of us have a little bit of vengeance in us, don't want, God, want them to repent. We don't want them to have received God's mercy. Deep down inside, I think a lot of us think that about our enemies. That is Jonah's mindset. Nineveh was a horribly wretched city. The Assyrians was a wretched empire. So what does that have to do with Life Sunday? Actually, a lot. Monday, we will... On January 22nd in 1973, the United States Supreme Court made their decision in regards to the famous court case of Roe versus Wade and declared it legal, declared abortion legal in the United States of America. Since then, 59 million have died by abortion. To give you perspective, actually that's just up to 2015, because that's the latest data we've got. But 59 million. To give you perspective, that would be if you took the 25 smallest states in the United States, combined them, and added about half of Alabama, then you have the population that has been killed through abortion. And don't, and just, I got to get this right out of the way, and I'm going to use a, an example that's kind of harsh, but it should hit home a little bit. If anybody thinks, well, it's just a bunch of tissue, it's not really a child. How many, if, I don't know about any of you, but I've known people who've miscarried. Would you dare tell any of them that they just lost a blob of tissue? I know that's a harsh example, but it shows the inconsistency in the logic. You cannot call a miscarriage the loss of a child and then say abortion is a loss of tissue. 
You can't have it both ways. If one is the loss of a child, then abortion is the murder of a child. Which is why, honestly, I think when we have miscarriages, we should have funerals. Because we, that is a human being that died. And that's why, and actually many of the pro-choice people, the abortion industry people, have tried to change the rhetoric and argue, well, it's not really a human being unless it's wanted. Which is why in Europe you already have countries that have made it legal to kill the child after the first month of life. So basically after a month with the baby, it's like, I don't really want it. You could bring it back to the doctor and he'll kill it. That's in Europe already. And one of the nice, I mean, there's a nice little statistic when it comes to abortion in our country. It is on the decline, which is good given the fact that the population is increasing, the birth rate is increasing, or hasn't really declined majorly. So the fact that the abortion rate is declined is nice, but it doesn't change the fact that it's still almost a million a year. That's almost, that is more than the population of South Dakota. In Planned Parenthood, they say that, well, that's only 3% of what we do. They abort an average over 300,000 children a year. That would be like if one day we got a president, like we had this president who did really great things economically. And he did, I mean, he really revved up the military, made it the best military in the world, and it already is, I know, but made it even better, like the best that nobody else could ever match. And he, he made the economy unlike anything else that has ever been, but one day he decided he just wanted to wipe out the entire population of Omaha. Would anybody say, well, I mean, that was a bad deal, but, you know, he did, that's only 3% of what he did. That'd be horrible. Nobody would ever say it. But that is what you are, that's what people are saying when that 300,000, oh, it's just 3%, they do good things. And yeah, Planned Parenthood, there's some things they do that are good. I know people that have been recipients of those good things. But it doesn't change the fact that they've killed over 300,000 children. Adolf Hitler did some great things too. He actually revitalized Germany's economy like none other. It was worse than ours was after the Depression. And he built it up. Doesn't change the fact that he killed 12 million people. This last Monday, we celebrated Martin Luther King Day. And we hear a lot about Black Lives Matter. And one of the things that gets a little, and I'm not talking about the, the movement, I'm talking about just that statement, Black Lives Matter. I don't know how somebody could say that in one breath and then in the next breath support the abortion industry. And I give you explanation as to why I say that is because more, if you took every single cause of death for African Americans and combined them, 
it still wouldn't be as many as how many are aborted every year. In other words, non-Hispanic blacks are more likely to die by abortion than any other form of death combined. That includes car accidents, heart attacks, cancer, suicide, mean police officers. You combine all of it, still not as many are as aborted. That is how horrible the abortion industry is. And the thing is, is we could easily pat ourselves on the back and say, well, I never aborted somebody, so I'm not so bad. Do you always make sure that the candidate you vote for is pro-life? Now understand, being pro-life does not mean you have to vote for them. Somebody could be pro-life and be completely incompetent on every other issue. But if they're pro-choice, that is a reason not to vote for them. And by the way, that's not a Democrat versus Republican thing. There are pro-life Democrats. There's not a lot, but they do exist. And also doesn't mean you have to vote Republican because not all Republicans are pro-life. In fact, if you paid attention to our last three presidential elections, the last three Republican candidates, for a long time people had to question, and people still question, whether or not they're pro-life. Because we, we sacrifice it for other things. Because they're good at other stuff. What's the big deal? It's just abortion, you know, that's one issue. What about these other things? These are more important. What's more important than the life of our children? Or perhaps you find out that someone is pregnant. And I'm talking about somebody who's pregnant outside of marriage. How do you react? Do you get mad at them for getting pregnant? Or do you, or do you rather get mad... When your reality is, you should have been getting mad at them when they were sleeping around. I'm going to let you in on a secret. Let you in on something. You could look through your entire Bible. There's not a single verse that says pregnancy is ever a sin. It is never, ever a sin to be pregnant. Don't get mad at a child, person for getting pregnant, even if they're a teenager. And you want to know why? If you think it is a sin to be pregnant as a teenager, you have a major theological problem. Because how old was Mary? 13 to 15. Then you'd have to say that was a sin. The sin isn't the pregnancy. The sin is how they got pregnant. We ignore that one but get mad when they get pregnant. No wonder why the people are, they hide it from them, they go to the abortion clinics, because they're going to be welcoming and say, welcome, we, we are loving, we're understanding. They go to their parents or grandparents, and by the way, I've seen this by members of congregations, not with this one, but I've seen this by people, where they glared right at their, their granddaughter, pregnant, says, I'm ashamed of that. The, belly, the, the baby in the womb. That 
that is contributing to the abortion problem. Planned Parenthood's welcoming and loving. Her own family will reject her. When they should have been, they should have been, they should have been teaching before that. And when you see the child, that they're pregnant, you say, well, this is going to be tough, but I'm going to love that child as my grandchild or great-grandchild or great-great, whatever it is. Love it just the same, because no matter how the child is born, it's a gift from God. And make sure the best thing you can do is, well, I can't wait, can't wait to bring that until that child's brought to the baptismal font and brought into God's family. And God does a miracle with that child. How often do we support things like, well, emergency pregnancy centers? How, or pro-life pregnancy centers, I mean. How often do we support organizations that help women who become pregnant? And more specifically, how well are we educating our boys about how they deal with women? Don't see women as a receptacle. See women, don't see them as an object. See them as valued, as a great gift from God. And to not, and if by chance they get a girl pregnant, live up to that responsibility as a father. It doesn't mean you have to get married, but you better be in that child's life. We have a lot to repent for as a nation. We all, myself included, have a lot to repent for. We are not better than Nineveh. Jonah could be sent to us. And I bet you there are people around this world who if they're told they had to go to Washington, D.C. and tell us to repent, they'd probably want to see us burn. It's reality. We are called to repent. We are called to confess our sin, to confess where we have failed. And if you remember from catechism, repentance has three parts. First, that you contrition, guilt, that you acknowledge that you have sinned. Two is faith. Faith that God will forgive us. And third, as we turn over a new leaf, we live differently. If you ever look at our confession of sins every Sunday morning, it kind of follows that outline. What you see with the Ninevites, that's what happened. They who had done such horrible things confessed their sin, they repented, and they had faith that God would forgive them. And he did. Now, as far as we know about history, that the Ninevites did not went right back to their ways really quickly. But for a short period, they were being, we are a model kingdom. They turned over a new leaf. So we do the same. We confess our sins daily and regularly. We confess that we have fallen short, not in caring for life in general, 
There are so many ways that we have failed in our protection and our celebrating of life. So we confess to God that we are poor, miserable sinners. And he who is gracious and merciful forgives. He relents. See, when you are baptized by the power of the cross, he has already forgiven you for every sin you have committed. And he continuously forgives. And so we, as forgiven children of God, what are we to do? Fight for life. Lutherans for life, we got a lot of tables, a lot of stuff on the table. You could get information there. If you want to learn about Lutherans for life, there is a pastor named Pastor Salcedo. I don't know if you've ever met him before, but our you know, our other pastor. Um, he is on the Lutherans for Life board. He could tell you quite a bit. And if that doesn't work, if you can't, for whatever reason, you can't catch up with him, there's the internet. You can find it really quickly. Support emergency pregnancy centers. And like I said, somebody becomes pregnant, make sure that you embrace that you see that child that is in the womb as a blessing. It may be inconvenient, it is inconvenient, true, but it's still a blessing. That is how we turn over a new leaf. And every time we fail, we have a throne of grace right here. In a little bit, you'll receive that grace. So that, may that be our pattern in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. The grace, peace, and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, keeping the one true faith and the life everlasting. Amen. Please stand.